This is Elder Jonathan Mosley, the pastor of Fairhaven Primitive Baptist Church in Tifton, Georgia. This series looks at three different messages on biblical stewardship. First, trying to merely define what it is and how we can be stewards of all that God's given us. And then we look specifically at stewarding stewardship within our finances and stewardship of our time. I pray that these messages would be a blessing to you. May God be glorified. The topic that's on my mind this morning is stewardship. Stewardship, if you look up the definition of the word steward in uh, Strong's, it says a domestic manager, a guardian, an overseer. Not a real helpful definition to me. Um, so I looked up a modern definition for stewardship, and it was, uh, it was more useful to me. So this is what I want you to think about this morning. Stewardship. The careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. So if something has been entrusted into your care, stewardship is the careful and responsible management of that thing. Okay. It's a pretty straightforward definition. A good biblical illustration of a faithful steward or stewardship would be Joseph. If you look in Genesis chapter 39, Joseph had been sold into slavery. Right? About as low as you can get. He was bought by a high figure who had wealth. His name was Potiphar. He was an officer of Pharaoh. He was a captain specifically of the guard. The Lord's with Joseph, and whatever he did prospered. So he was put in this man's house, and the man Potiphar pretty quickly realized that this man was faithful in whatever he was doing, and that things went well, and so he put, put him more under his care. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him. Joseph served his master, his wrongful master. He had been sold by his brothers into this role, but this man was over him, and he served him. He served him faithfully. And Potiphar wound up making Joseph the overseer over his house. Those synonyms for steward, overseer, manager of the household. And all that he had, he put into his hand. So everything from all the dishes, all the furniture, all the livestock, to all the money and all the accounts of wherever it's at, it was all under Joseph's charge. And it came to pass from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not aught that he had. He wasn't looking behind him at the records. 
He wasn't checking every day to see if it all came out. He was just trusting. In fact, it got so far out that he had no idea. He just knew the Lord's blessing, and that's that was good. He had no idea what he had save the bread that he did eat. So his you know, knowledge of his household consisted of he sat down at the dinner table. What's on it? Oh, well, we got this. That's pretty nice. So he had a lot of confidence and trust in the overseer of his stuff. And Joseph was a goodly and well-favored person. So Joseph carefully and responsibly managed everything that was entrusted into his care. At no time did it become Joseph's stuff. It was always his master's. At every point, he had to care for it in a way that the master would approve. Okay? If you turn with me to Exodus chapter 9, I'm going to establish something you already know. We're going to look at Scripture to make sure you know why it's so. The concept, when you use preacher words, you could describe as divine ownership. Well, who's the divine? That's God, right? What does God own? Everything. That's real simple to say. Let's see where it teaches that in Scripture. Exodus 9 and 29. This is in the midst of God demonstrating His power by whooping up on Egypt. And so there's some terrible storms going on and Pharaoh is calling Moses saying, All right, I've sinned. The Lord's righteous. I'm wicked. Ask Him to stop it and I'll let you go. All right? Mighty thunderings. This will be some pretty bad thunderstorm, right? And Moses said, As soon as I am gone out of the city, I will spread abroad my hands unto the Lord, and the thunder shall cease. Neither shall there be any more hail, that thou may knowest what that thou know. That thou may knowest how the earth is the Lord's. Boys, who's the earth belong to? God, the Lord, right? And so he was using this demonstration of his power of I'm going to go out and I'm going to do this specific thing at this specific spot so you will learn something that's already the truth. Him doing it didn't make it God's. It was already God's. He was just saying, I'm going to show this point so you know that the earth is God's. All right? Go over to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. Any lawyers in the room? One. Lawyers like to, you know, argue things. Well, well the earth's just the Lord's. Well, well, how much of it? And he doesn't specifically say, right? Well, if you go to Exodus chapter 19 and in verse 5, it said, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be my peculiar treasure unto me above all the people. For all... The earth is mine. 
That's pretty broad language. Right. All the earth. Okay. Lawyer says, yeah. What about above the earth? Go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Numbers and Deuteronomy, right? Deuteronomy 10 and in verse 14. Deuteronomy 10 and 14. Behold! That's a nice way of saying, look here. Behold! The heaven! That would be that blue sky you're looking at. And the heaven of heavens! You'll see that picture from the James Webb telescope and satellite. Pretty impressive. You're holding up a little grain of sand pointing at the sky. That's how much sky that picture is covering. It's got thousands of galaxies and untold stars. And that's how much of the heavens of heavens that you're looking at. Behold the heaven, and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's, thy God. Yep. Everything in the universe. As far as you can go. All the galaxies, all the stars, all the comets. Behold the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God. The earth also, with all that therein is. All that therein is. Okay? Well, earth, generally that word there is, is, uh, is firm. It's like land. Right. Well, what about the sea? He didn't mention that yet. Go over to Job. Job 41. Job 41 and down in verse 11. Who hath prevented me that I should repay him whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. Alright? So we've got the earth. We've got all that's on the earth. We've got the heaven. We've got the heavens of heavens. And then everything under heaven, too. So you've got your sea in there. Well, what about, about the people? Psalm 24. Psalm 24 and verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the world, and they that dwell therein. So that word earth there again is firm. The firmness of the ground, all the land, everything that's in it that grows out of it, the fullness thereof, the world, that's often translated globe, but literally the Hebrew word comes from moist, which means the inhabitable parts. All the inhabitable parts of the land, all the isles, everywhere, and they that dwell therein. All the people. Why? Why is it his? Read the next verse. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Go to Psalm 89 and verse 11. Psalm 89, verse 11. 
The heavens are thine, the earth also is thine. As for the world and the fullness thereof, thou hast founded them. The north and the south, thou hast created them. God is the creator. There's a lot of literature over as long as mankind has been writing trying to answer the questions where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? And without this you largely don't have a clue. Now God reveals himself as the creator through nature. At which point he says often they're willfully ignorant of that. But where did you come from? God created you. God is the creator. And all that he has created is his. This is fact. This is not debatable. Our lives, ourselves, everything that we have is his. Why do I go through all this whole list to draw out this? Is that there's no exceptions. You're not special. You don't somehow get to fall out of this everything in the whole universe category. You belong to God. He owns you as his, as your creator. Okay? Boys and I have been enjoying watching Forged in Fire. All right? That's where these guys have to rush around like crazy trying to make blades super fast. Ridiculously amount of time. So, illustration. Patrick, as a bladesmith, if you go and you make that blade and you've got it all fixed up and it's ready, you've created it. Can Zach come over here, take your blade and sell it? No, why? Who's it belong to? You. You made it, right? We recognize that in our culture that if you create something, it's yours. And no one can come Take it and tell it. That's, we call that stealing. <laughs> right? Well, what if Zach says, well, it's mine. I found it. Or it's free. Or doesn't matter what he says, right? He's wrong. <laughs> it belongs to you because you created it. Right? Simple illustration. What if the knife starts talking and says, no, I'm Zach's. Doesn't matter. The knife's wrong. It's weird that you made a talking knife, but... Satan's <laughs> in the knife. <laughs> Anyway, the point being is this is not something you can escape. This is not something you can deny. This is not something that is questionable. You belong to God. Everything belongs to God. Okay? Even your ability to work and to gain wealth. That belongs to God. Go back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is a warning. The children of Israel have not come into the promised land yet. But he's already given them a warning. Moses, who's not going to be able to go with them for his disobedience, he's given them a warning that there's going to come a time when you have 
Enjoy this land of plenty. You're rich, you're full, and you may be tempted to ignore the God that brought you there. So that's what he's saying in verse 10. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he's given thee. That's what you should do. Verse 11, Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I have commanded thee this day, lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast has built goodly houses and dwell therein and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied that thy heart be lifted up and thou forget the Lord thy God which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt. Alright, now jump down to verse 17 just for the sake of time. And I say in thy heart this is what you're foolishly saying my power and in the might of my hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember that the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he sware unto thy fathers as it is this day. Everything belongs to God. Everything in your life, every aspect of you, even your ability to work and have gain. All of your gifts and talents that you have. They came from Him. If you look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and in verse 7. 1 Corinthians 4 and 7 it says, Who maketh thee to differ from one another? Are we all the same? No, absolutely not. Do we all have the same gifts and talents in life? No. If I had to put up sheetrock and uh, mud and tape every day for a living, I'd be skinnier. <laughs> I could do it, but I ain't good at it. Right? We don't have, all have the same gifts or talents. But who made you to differ? Right, God. And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, the context of these people are glorying about their gifts and talents as if they hadn't been given to them. Well, you have to recognize that everything you have is given to you by God. And if they're given to you by God, who do they belong to? God, right? God owns it all. He is the creator. He is the owner. I work for Him. Okay? Well, that kind of leads us to that second question. Where did I come from? That's one. Why am I here? Why did He create me? What's my purpose? If I work for Him, I belong to Him, everything I've got is His, what am I supposed to do? That's really where it kind of comes down to it. Go to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43 and in verse 7. Even everyone that is called by my name. For I have created him. He's the creator. Those that are called by his name. For the children of God here. I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yea, I have made him. Why did God... 
create you. Why are you here? Is it to accumulate a bunch of stuff and go to college and get the great career and have the 2.5 kids and the 401k and all the other things that we kind of look at? This is the American dream! Nope. He created you for His glory. I'll go a little farther in this chapter down to 21. It says, This people have I formed for myself. He's created you. He's created you for Him. They shall show forth my praise. Why are you created? You are created to glorify God. And you're created to praise Him. Praise and glory. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. Now these two concepts are actually very closely linked. If you look over in Psalm 50, Psalm 50 and in verse 23... Psalm 50 and 23. Whosoever offereth praise glorifieth me. You're to show forth his praise, created for his glory. When you're offering praise, you're glorifying him. Okay? This kind of leads me to the question of okay, if I'm created to glorify him, how? How do I glorify Him? How can I glorify God? Well, it says here I can praise Him. So that's, that's one thing. I can praise Him. It's one of the main reasons we're here. Why we come and pray and then have a song service is because we are praising our God. Collectively, and when we're not here, Need to be doing it too. Alright? But there's another way that we glorify God. This is revealed in John 15 and in verse 8. It says, Herein is my Father glorified. That's that's a pretty good intro. If I'm asking for how to glorify God, herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. Okay. Now this is figurative language, obviously. We're not saying we need to start sprouting apples on our arms. But we're to bear spiritual fruit. Fruit of the Spirit, right? Verse 16 of the same chapter says, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. Okay? You should bring forth fruit, and your fruit should remain. I have ordained you. He set you out for a purpose. He's created you, and set a purpose for you to go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. Okay. 
talk more about that another day. If you need more insight into the spiritual fruit, go read Galatians chapter 5. But you know that God also glorifies Himself through you? Kind of a weird concept, right? Sometimes we kind of get us focused, but God glorifies Himself through you, in you. What do I mean by that? I mean, go to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and 23 says, What if God, willing to show His wrath, God wanted to show His wrath, His judgment, and to make His power known, He was going to, is going to, visibly demonstrate His wrath and might and power, to do that, he endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. By rights for a single sin, every single one of us, immediately upon completion of that sin, is deserving of being blasted straight into hell. It's that big of a deal. Now, we know that for every single child of God for whom Jesus died on that cross and finished, he's put away those sins, that price has already been paid. It was paid in the person of Jesus. He's borne that already for his people. But God is also choosing not to immediately dispense that punishment upon every other individual when they immediately sin. That's why he's saying he's being long-suffering. He's being patient. He is allowing the course of this world to go all the way until he says, time's up. So when Christ comes back, when you have that last day, you have that final trump, you have the separation of God's, these are mine, these are not. And on that day, you've got these vessels that are described as vessels of wrath. These individuals who are fitted for destruction. They are ready. They are complete for destruction because of their sin. The other side of that coin is that, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath afore prepared unto glory. So by demonstrating his wrath over here and judgment on the wicked... He's perfectly righteous to do so. By the same token, on you, on his child, every single one of his children throughout all history, he is demonstrating the riches, the immeasurable amount of his glory and mercy that he is showing to you. He gets to show off how good and merciful He is by what He's done for you. You didn't have a hand in it. You're just the beneficiary of it. Okay? Go over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. The first three verses talk about when you were dead in sins and you were... In that life, you look just like the world, you act like the world, you're pursuing the lust of the flesh, you were nasty and vile. 
But in verse 4 it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, hath made us alive together with Christ, by grace are you saved, hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. Why? That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace, that undeserved favor, are you saved through faith. And that's not of yourself. That faith doesn't come from you. It's a gift. It's a gift from God. Not of your works. Because if it was that case, you'd be bragging about yourself. Look what I've done. Woo-hoo! Not of works, lest any man should boast or brag. And so we are created. We are created His workmanship. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God hath ordained that we should go and bear fruit, and our fruit should remain good works. They're synonymous. Sometimes we think about spiritual fruit as just us kind of laying down sins and taking a, a more spiritual attitude and, and being more patient and everything. Yeah, there's an internal aspect of that. But it's also manifested in what we're doing. Right? Faith without works is, is dead. You're not living out that love. Well, this is the living it out. There are internal changes as you're growing and being sanctified and you're becoming more like Christ. But it's reflected in what you're doing and how you go about doing it. Okay, so we are created in we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus under good works. Alright? First Peter chapter two. So we're passive in one sense in terms of salvation. That's didn't have a hand in it. But after you're born again, you don't remain passive. You're not changing the end outcome. But you have spiritual life and you are to be about things. You be about those good works. Second Peter nine, two 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But ye are a chosen generation, elect, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. It doesn't mean weird necessarily. It just means particular, special. He chose individually. Right? That, here's why. Here's why. That ye show, that you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Now, as your creator, he is entitled to your praise. As your creator, you are to glorify him. As your creator, he owns you. However, on top of that, he's also your redeemer. And as your redeemer, he's bought you with the precious blood of his son. And you owe him 
your praises of gratitude for how He's showing off His glory on a worthless sinner like me. To show forth the praises of Him that called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. This is wonderful. This is not ho-hum, hunky-dory. This is not... Uh, you'll ever go to a movie and you're like, man, that was really bad. It should have gone straight to VHS. I don't even know what VHS is, right? A movie so bad that it went straight to DVD. It just never went to theaters. So why is he talking about that? Sometimes when we come to church, we act like this is a straight to VHS you know, kind of experience. This is not. This is way above marvelous of what is being described, what we're here for. This is not ho-hum or hunky-dory. This is... If we're really following after the Lord as hard as we need to be, if we're thinking about what He's done for us and the magnitude of how good He is, now church should be the absolute highlight of your week. There should be nothing better. There should be everything about, I'm, I'm ready to get there. Why? Because I need to praise Him because look at all these things that He's done now and in the big picture and I'm looking forward to Him and I want to know more about Him. I want to know more about this love that He has for me. Right? Nothing else should outrank that. If it does, that's the idol in your life right now. An idol is anything you put in God's spot. And his spot has to be number one. And guess what, guys? He's worthy of being number one. There's nobody who can compete with that. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 lays it out very plainly that you are not your own. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's start in verse 17. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. And you can look at the the context of this. If it's um, talking about fornication and going into a harlot and how the the unity there is, is very similar to the unity in marriage and you become one. And it's not something to be light or taken uh, anything other than very serious. He says that he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. There is a unity with your Lord. You're born again. You've got the indwelling Holy Spirit within you. You're one with Him. And therefore, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doth that is without the body, but he that committeth sin sinneth against his own body. Sometimes you will hear in our culture, well, there's no, there's no foul there. It didn't hurt anybody. If anything, they're just hurting themselves. That doesn't mean it's not sin. Sinning against your own body is still sin against God because your body's not yours. Verse 19 says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, He's given it to you, and ye are not your own. Ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Every aspect of you belongs to God. And how you use it should glorify and praise God. 
It's saying it's you're like a temple. Right? Jesus got very upset when folks were misusing his father's house. Right? They had to turn, turned it into a money exchange station over here. Oh, you're going to donate to the church, but you don't want to give all that? Here, come over here. I'll swap out your coins and you can, you know, whatever. Um, oh, you need a sacrifice here? You need an ox? I got one in the stall right here in the, the middle of the temple. That's that's a mess. At least the doves are smaller, but I mean, probably had a lot more of them. And Jesus was very upset by this misuse of the temple. This is supposed to be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. Well, if your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, how are you defiling that temple? Is it like you've got, you know, imagine your Greek temple and you've got it just spray painted and you got all manner of filth going on inside there. Anybody be pleased with that? Man, the historic society be up in arms. But we're the temple, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. We're not our own. We're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Alright? And just for, I mentioned it earlier about what are you purchased with. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Acts 20 and 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. Paul is um, saying this unto the church at Ephesus, the leaders who'd come to meet him. He didn't have time to stop in the city. He was on his way to Jerusalem. And he's basically saying goodbye. He knows he's never going to see him again in person. So he's giving this charge. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God this is all very good not necessarily relevant to what we're talking about here but this last clause to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood you were bought something God already owned he redeemed from death and hell by the blood of His Son. This is no small thing. This is that marvelous light. Coming into that light had a very, very high price. I belong to God. I belong to Him as His creation. He's my Creator. I belong to Him because He has purchased me. Purchased me with his own blood. I am created here. You are created here for his glory and for his praise. Not only did he create me naturally, he actually created me again in the new birth. So that was created a new creature in Christ Jesus, which he hath ordained me unto good works and to go forth and bear much fruit. Much fruit. I, you, we must 
be dedicated, centered around, focused on praising and glorifying God. I said the same thing three different ways, but it's, it's okay. You need to be ded- dedicated to praising and glorifying God. You need to be centering your life around praising and glorifying God. You need to be focused on praising and glorifying God. As your creator? Yes. As your redeemer? Yes. How about as your father? He adopted you into his family. Are you worthy to be in the king's family? Short answer, nope. (laughs) Imagine if the queen of England says, hey, would you like to fill out some applications to be my child? There's some really great benefits, right? They got their stipends here every year, and then they've got their lands that they're, you know, they pass down to You think, man, that'd be pretty neat. But that just pales in comparison. Because what would happen when she took your application? She's like, nah. (laughs) Look at this guy. But God knew everything. I mean, the things that don't show up on the background check. He knew everything all the way down to your worst thought on your vilest day. The day you mistreated somebody the worst when they didn't deserve it. All the things down to that. And he put his love upon you anyway. And died for you when you were yet his enemy and a sinner and cleaned you up to bring you into his family. And you've got this inheritance that way outranks all the crown jewels that they could put together over there in Buckingham Palace. All the land that doesn't even compare. So is he worthy of your praise and glory? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, if my topic is stewardship, why have we been talking about ownership? What was the definition of stewardship? The careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. Alright? In a stewardship relationship, somebody has to be the owner, somebody has to be the steward. And so what we spent our time this morning is clarifying... Who's the owner? Is it you? No. Say, well, that's obvious. Okay. Need to be reminded. Because often we don't act like it. Often we don't act like it. Alright? The careful and responsible management of something entrusted into God's care. So, into one's care. So what has God entrusted into my care? Well, let's start close to home with myself. He has trusted yourself. What does that include? That includes your physical body. That includes your mind. That includes your spirit. That includes your time, your attention, slash focus, slash effort, whatever you want to categorize that your strength your love your affection all your earthly possessions and all the increases that come from my labors y'all can think of anything I left out I was trying to get, get it all but everything about us Everything. 
Sometimes we think of stewardship and we just kind of limit it to just money. That's one aspect of it. But he's really entrusted you with much more. What else? What else has God put in your responsibility and care? If you're married, spouse. Start with spouse. Both spouses are responsible and caring for the other. Now, these are different authorities, yes. But each spouse has a responsibility for the other and care for the other. That's something you're entrusted with. Including their physical body, their time, their attention, all those things that you have influence on and care for. Same thing with children. Who do they belong to? God. They don't belong to me. They don't believe, regardless of how long, how loud they may say it, they don't belong to themselves. Right? Husbands and fathers and leaders, we have to teach that. Right? You may be wanting to do this thing, but this does not glorify and honor God, and therefore we will not do it. Spouse? Or children. Drawing those lines. Now my voice is held up. I won't push it. But I'm going to leave you with an illustration. And we're going to continue this next Sunday, Lord willing. Here's your illustration. Let's imagine in this scenario, you're the owner. You have something... Well, let's say, I don't know, half a million dollars. You've got half a million dollars. It's just come into you. You don't really know what to do, so you hire a wealth investor. You say, here, manage this money for me. Okay. The wealth investor says, okay. And you find out he takes that money, he goes and buys himself a vacation home and a jet ski and a boat, and he's there every weekend. You follow up, you say, what you doing? He's like, well, you know, when I sell it, you'll get you'll get some of the extra money, and then and then you'll be better off. Okay. And then later, he sells it, and he goes to Vegas, and he blows it on shows and food and drinking and drugs and fornication and whatever else you do in Vegas, because it's not a good place. How would you, as the owner, be thinking about the care and management of your funds by that wealth investor? Would you be pleased? Did he further your interests? Or did he act like the stuff that he put, you put into his care was his own to use and blow and waste in any old way. Thank y'all for your time and attention. <coughs> so we teed up last week our introduction into the concept of stewardship. And we gave a definition of the careful and responsible management of something entrusted into one's care. 
Okay, and we looked at the principle of who is the owner of all things. Obvious answer, God. Do we always act like it? <laughs> no, we don't. So, we kind of painfully went through a bunch of verses. Hopefully it wasn't too painful, but to clarify that everything in the earth, everything that grows there, every person in there, everything in the heavens, in the sea, in the heavens of heavens, it all belongs to Him. He is the divine owner, the right as a creator, including you individually. And not only does He own you as the creator, He's also purchased you with the blood of His Son. And so, He is your master in twofold. And you owe Him a loyalty and a duty to care for His stuff. Anything that's in your life, including your physical body, your mind, your uh, physical possessions, your time, attention, love, your family, everything that's in your care and responsibility belongs to Him and you're managing it for Him. So that was last week's sermon boiled down to 90 seconds. Right. I need to recap. Go. Let's do it again. I don't like preaching about money. There's a lot of folks on TV who talk a lot about money, and they talk about it in the wrong way. <clears throat> and if I'm charged with teaching the whole counsel of God, it talks about money a whole lot. So, I'm going to do that this morning. So what we're going to look at is going to be very blunt, and that is the stewardship of your personal finances. Because who does it belong to? God. And we've got to look at His Word and see what He says about it. Because otherwise we can get some pretty squirrely notions if we're not grounding ourselves in the truth. We start using our emotion or our heart or whatever. I think God or I feel God rather than thus saith God's Word we're liable to get pretty far off base. So I'm going to consider it from four different angles or perspectives, categories, however you want to line it out, and I'll give them to you in advance. Number one, how do I earn money? Stewardship and how I earn money. How do I manage the Lord's funds? How do I spend the Lord's funds? And finally, what is my attitude towards the Lord's funds? I could spend a sermon on each of these. I'm not going to. I'm going to try and cover this in one. And so it will be relatively high level and not all-encompassing. But what I'm hoping is that it will whet your appetites and that you will go study on these. If you have specific questions, come talk to me. I'm fine with that. But these are four aspects of our finances, Lord's finances. We've got to be rooted and grounded in truth. So, first category. How I earn money. Remember, I'm a steward. Everything that I do, every talent that I've been given, the ability to work is a gift from God. I report to Him. And so the question that I need to be answering in every activity that I engage in is... Am I glorifying God in this process? Right? We said, as the divine odor, why did He create us? He created us for His glory and to praise Him. So, we should be glorifying Him 
even in our labors and earning funds. So I'm going to give you three kind of high-level categories in this. Um, this is, again, not all-encompassing, but this is to get you thinking. So I want you to go with me to Proverbs. We read Proverbs in our Bible reading not too long ago. <clears throat> um, and so there is, a, there is a whole bunch of content in the book of Proverbs that speaks to this. I mean, a non-believer could read the book of Proverbs and come away with a lot of really good information. If they implemented it, that would be wonderful for them. But you get to implement it because you know it's true and you know who's speaking it because you love the man who wrote it, which is God. You, know, you, you love the writer. So, let's start with Proverbs 21 and verse 6. How we earn money. Am I glorifying God? And I got the dichotomy here. Two different, you know, opposites. Honesty and integrity and unjust gain. It's either going to be one of the two. Am I earning funds with honesty and integrity or am I doing something that is unjust? I need to be fully in the camp of honesty and integrity. Proverbs 26, verse 6 says, The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a vanity. Toss to and fro of them that seek death. Can you obtain physical riches through deceit and lies? Yeah. And it says that, that vanity, those, those riches are going to be tossed back and forth between the wicked. That's not where we need to be goes on and says, The robbery of the wicked shall destroy them because they refuse to do judgment. The way of the man, the way of man, your carnal nature, 21, 6 through 8, the way of man is forward, means perverse and strange. But as for the pure, his work is right. You can obtain riches in this world through deceit, through robbery, through lying. And if your goal in life is just to obtain riches, you'll find ways to do that. There'll be ways you can do it and you probably won't even get caught. But child of God, that's not for you. You're not glorifying God when you bend the rules, and we use that term loosely, to gain funds. Go back to chapter 11 of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 3 says, The integrity of the upright shall guide them, but the perverseness of transgressors shall destroy them. Perverseness. That's a distortion. However, shade what you're saying to make it sound a little bit better or to convince somebody whereas integrity is speaking Truth, upright, honestness, honestly. Integrity shall guide them. And that's true. It's If you are maintaining integrity in what you do, it's pretty straightforward on, on how to handle it. But if you get into all this gray areas, and they're not really gray, of where can I distort it? Where is the line? When when is it just good business? Right? That's, that's a lie. All right? 
You can't separate who you are as a follower of God from your business life. Your business life should be a reflection of the fact that you're a follower of God. So integrity as opposed to perverseness. In fact, if you go up to chapter uh, verse 1 in that same chapter, it says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. Why does, why does God care if your scale's accurate? Because you're the one who's distorting it. It's not so much the scale, so much as what are you doing? You're cheating somebody. You're lying. You're being deceptive. That doesn't glorify God. That which is upright. That which is honest. And you can say, well, Brother John, this is obvious. Yeah! Do it! Because there's going to be times where you're tempted, maybe of your own accord, or maybe because someone you report to tells you to do the wrong thing. You don't get a pass, child of God, because the person you report to tells you to do the wrong thing. You report to someone way higher. Well, what if it costs me my job? Okay. That may be the consequence. You may not be to be there. But doing the right thing in spite of the hard consequences is still the right thing. Because your ultimate purpose is not to keep that job and not to please that boss. It's to please and glorify and praise God. That's your primary purpose. And we can't forget that. Alright, so am I glorifying God as I earn my money? Well, am I earning it honestly, with integrity, with uprightness? Right? And again, we could go on to this for an hour. We're not going to. A different portion of that is am I working with patience and diligence as opposed to sloth, another word for laziness, you know, looking for that hasty, quick, get-rich scheme. Right? You know, I've seen a bunch of those advertised, right? You just do this and you'll be rich. You know, Come to my seminar, sit there for an hour, and then you're going to be rich. Right? Go to Proverbs chapter 10. We're right there. Proverbs 10 and 4. He becometh poor that dealeth with a slack hand, but the hand of the diligent maketh rich. There's, there's just sound practical reality that if you are lazy and not willing to work, it's gonna you're gonna tend to become poor. And those who are willing to work and be diligent, you know, you, you have more. That's that's just a reality. Go to twelve and twenty seven. The slothful man roasteth not which he took in hunting, but the substance of a diligent man is precious. Someone who's slothful is more likely to waste what they have. The Lord's given something. So here the example is, you know, you've gone hunting. You've, you've got that deer. You take the tenderloins out, you grill them, and you leave the rest. Right? Whereas the diligent, the one who's willing to do the hard work and preserve that which the Lord has given, it's, it takes effort. It's easy to take the easy way out. That's why they call it that. So am I glorifying God by being diligent and attentive in my role or am I shirking and just trying to look for the easy way out? Because that will show up in how I care for His stuff, what I allow to go to waste. Uh, Go down to chapter 13, verse 11. Wealth gotten by vanity shall be diminished, but he that gathereth by labor 
shall increase. So this is this is throwing out your get rich quick schemes. That's gathering it by vanity. It's a worthless idle way. But that which is gathered by labor, that's that's a process. That's slow. That's the the little by little. Giving attention. Pain. Now am I saying if you do that, you're gonna be rich in this world? Not necessarily. But you are called to be diligent and industrious in, in your work. Not to take it to the extreme of that's all you do. You know, we, we sometimes in our society we kind of praise the workaholic. Well, look at them. They're just they're just going at the seams. That's the other ditch. You've made that work and whatever you're coming home, you've made that your idol. Your God, your God is who you're to glorify and praise. Not what you're doing and certainly not yourself. The earning the funds is just a tool. It's a means to an end to glorify and praise Him in the other aspects of your life. Provide for your family and your needs. Alright? So wealth gotten by vanity is diminished. Goes away. But he that gathereth by labor it shall increase. And finally let's go to chapter 21. Twenty-one and five. The thoughts of the diligent tend only to plenteousness, having enough. But everyone that is hasty only to want. Diligent versus hasty. Looking for the shortcuts, looking for the easy way out, versus that patient diligence. Okay, and then again down in chapter same same chapter, down in verse twenty-five. The desire of the slothful killeth him, for his hands refuse to labor. So for lazy, the things that we want, they're just going to drive us nuts. We want them so bad, and they're unattainable. But you're unwilling to work. Right? So how am I earning funds, and am I glorifying God in the process? Am I dealing honestly with integrity in everything that I do? Am I operating with patience and diligence and steadiness? Or am I looking for the easy way out? Am I trying to cheat somebody to get ahead? Am I trying to cheat my boss to get ahead? Am I lazy? Or am I hasty? And again, there's a ton of other categories you can think about in the context of how am I earning funds. Go, go, go research it. I'll just give you one other aspect and I want you to go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and in verse 17 says, Whatsoever ye do in word or deed. So everything that comes out of your mouth and everything that you're doing, your activities, your labors, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. When we work, and earn funds, we have to remember who we're working for. It's not that immediate boss if we work for a boss. It's not ourselves if we own our own company and we're an entrepreneur. Everything we do needs to be done in such a manner that it brings glory to the name of Jesus Christ. And again, it gets even more explicit down there in 23 of the same chapter, Colossians 3 and 23. And whatsoever you do, that's a pretty broad language, right? Anything escape that? Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. 
and not under men. That gets into that diligent labor that we're putting in. Put your put some gusto into it because you're serving God. Okay? It's easy to get off track in our jobs and lose sight of who we're working for and why we're working. This is just kind of bringing our perspective back to everything that we do needs to be done under the Lord. And guess what? If you can't do what you're doing in a way that glorifies God, you may not need to be doing it. Well, what if I make really good money? That's not in the equation. If you can't be honest and upright, if you can't glorify Him in what you're doing, that needs to be more important. This is a recalibration of our priorities. Whatsoever you do, do in the name of Jesus and do it heartily as unto the Lord. Okay, so that's that's kind of your, your high-level survey of how are we earning funds. Alright? Next thing I want to look at is how do I manage the Lord's funds? So, well, what do you mean by that? Isn't that kind of all this stewardship? Well, I want to use uh, the language in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. This is a parable in which Jesus talks about a steward who was not faithful. Um, and the Lord um, is a rich man who found out about it. Um, and the guy had been accused of wasting the rich man's stuff. All right, so there's been an accusation. And the rich man calls him and said unto them, How is it I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship. For thou mayest be no longer a steward. So he wanted to see the books. He wanted to see the records. And this is the verse, the expression I want is given an account. If the Lord came to you today and said, give me an account of how you've used everything that I've given you, would you be able to tell him? Because, I don't know, ain't a real good answer to give to the Lord who owns the stuff. Not, it doesn't show the careful and responsible management of His things. And so if we're going to manage the Lord's funds, we need to know where they're at, what they're doing. We need to keep records. We need to understand what's coming in and what's going out. You know, this is just kind of common sense stuff, but taking reasonable security for protecting your Lord's funds. You know, you don't leave $100 bills on the, the dash of your car, right? You say, well, that's, that's foolish. All right, well, use the same thing as far as protecting your accounts. No, they're just taking reasonable precautions to not make things easy for somebody to take your Lord's funds. I mean, that's... Y'all are, y'all are wise folks. You can think through that. But the aspect of that is, is just giving attention to the Lord's details, to the details of the Lord's funds, of what, what's going on with them. You know, and in the context of that, you need to have some planning involved. Right? How am I going to use my Lord's funds this month? What am I using them towards in the long term? I remember Jesus would say over in Luke 14 talking about you know which one of you sets out to build a tower doesn't sit down first and count the cost well that's a long term plan you've got something that you're working towards and it should be something that glorifies God and you're seeing now what do I need to accomplish this 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 takes some diligence this takes some effort this is not just going to happen same thing with with short term planning of what what am I going to do here with these funds this month. Right? Just kind of the normal thing. And you can see that illustrated in Proverbs chapter 27. Proverbs 27. I don't want the uh, 
the end of the chapter, 23 through 27. The admonition here says, Be thou diligent, talked about that a minute ago, Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks and look well to thy herd. So in this context, you're a shepherd, cattleman, whatever, you've got assets that are there under your control. It says to be diligent to know them, know where they are, know where they're doing. But it doesn't stop there. It says, For riches are not forever, and doth the crown endure, the crown endure to every generation. The hay appeareth, and the tender grass showeth itself, and the herbs of the mountain are gathered. The lambs are for thy clothing, the goats are for the price of the field. And thou shalt have goat's milk enough for thy food, for the food of thy household, and for the maintenance of thy maidens. You've got the different aspects of those assets that the Lord had given you, and what each one was going to be used for. And you've got that plan. You know that I've got to care for these lambs because I'm going to sell those and I'm going to, that's going to be the clothing. That's going to be the raiment that we've got. The goats are for the price of the field. I've got to either buy the field or I'm renting it to feed them. You know, that's what I'm using this for. The goat's milk, there's your food and the maintenance of thy maintenance. You've got those that are under your charge and care that you need to use the Lord's assets in a responsible way, but you've got to know what that plan is. Okay? And I'll add a caveat here, a little asterisk. If you're married, you got to tell each other about it. <laughs> because if a plan, you've got a great plan, you're not going to have great execution if both parties don't know about it. <laughs> and you got to have buy-in on that, otherwise you will have friction. So there's an element of communication. And using the Lord's funds, well, if you're married, you're, you've got you know joint stewardship here. You need to make sure the other steward, who's got that name on the checking account too, understands how y'all are working together to glorify the Lord in your life. All right? That avoids a lot of conflict. All right? Again, this is high-level stuff. I know that. So maybe the harder one, right? How am I being a steward of the Lord's funds when I spend it? Right now we've just earned it and we've, we're kind of accounting for it. We're keeping track of it. Here's where the rubber really meets the road, right? The spending portion. Am I glorifying God as I spend his funds? That's kind of the operative question. Alright? Where should we start? What should be our top priority as we're thinking about where do we spend his funds? Well, go to Proverbs chapter 3 and in verse 9. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 9. Where do you start? I start here. Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. It's the Lord's stuff. The first thing you need to spend it on is giving it back to Him. Now, just for clarification, you are not Jews under the Old Testament law. You are not mandated to tithe. You're not mandated to give first fruits. You're not mandated to do any of those things under the Old Testament that were designed to support the Levitical <coughs> priesthood and the temple and all that structure. You are not mandated to do any of those things. So, Thank you. 
you are commanded to honor the Lord with your substance, and that be your wealth, and with the first fruits of your increase, that which He gives you. You have to honor Him. You know what the word honor literally means? Weighty. Do you consider the Lord weighty or important in your life if you give Him the equivalent of a tic-tac? Is that really something important? Or are you just giving lip service? And so if you want you want real brass tacks, you know, some folks talk about 10%. Is it 10% the ideal? That's, that's what a tithe means. It means a tenth. Is it the ideal? Go to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. And in verse 6. It had been talking about the Old Testament priesthood. And then he talks about Jesus and his ministry. So 8 and 6, it says, But now hath he, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, obtained a more excellent ministry. But how how much also he is a mediator of a better covenant, which is established upon better promises. So, child of God, here in the New Testament, you serve... A God who came and brought you a better covenant, better promises, and you have a better mediator. And so if it was mandatory in the Old Testament to give that 10%, maybe we ought to be considering, can we do better because we've received better? Now, am I going to tell you what you need to to give to the church? No. No. Lord's word should convict you on that. Am I saying that everything that you give the Lord has to come to this church? No. There are folks over preaching in Africa right now. Support them. But I am saying that you have to be intentional about giving the Lord's funds into his service. What's the primary mission, you know, role of the church? In order to continue to spread the gospel. Support that. It's worth it. Is this uncomfortable to listen to? Probably. It's uncomfortable to preach. It's still true. Okay? How do I spend it? Start there. That's why it talks about first fruits. The concept of that is the first portion is what you're giving to God. Not, I've done all the things that I need to do and all the things that I want to do and then anything that's left... Okay, God, here's your peace. That's having it backwards. Now, if you're not tracking it and budgeting it and knowing where things are, you won't get that. That other peace has to come first and being deliberate in doing that. Okay? So that's one aspect, and that's, that's probably the most important aspect to consider. But beyond that, beyond just giving immediately in the Lord's service, there's also an aspect of being generous with His funds, His goods. Go to Proverbs uh, 22. Generosity. Proverbs 22, and then verse 9. He that hath a bountiful eye shall be blessed, for he giveth his bread to the poor. A bountiful eye means, means a good eye. Bread to the poor. Go back to 
chapter 21 and verse 10, it says, Whoso stoppeth his ears at the cry of the poor, he shall also cry himself and shall not be heard. Now, in the New Testament, we're told that would let us be content with our food and raiment. So if you need to know, well, how, what's the best way for me to minister to the poor? When's the line? Where's the draw? I think that's a pretty good indication. Provide food and raiment. If we're to be content with that, you see a need of someone who's hungry? Feed them. You see someone who's naked and cold? Let them clothe them. Clothing. That's not the one you turn your head from. Okay. However, again in 21, down in verse 25, uh, we looked at this a minute ago. The desire of the slothful killeth him, for his hands refuse to labor. He coveteth greedily all the day long. Same same concept here. Same, talking about the same slothful man. He's coveting greedily all the day long. But the righteous, what should the righteous do? Giveth and spareth not. Okay? We need to train ourselves to look for opportunities to give away the Lord's money. He describes that as that being characteristics of the righteous. And we want to be like our Lord is. He's righteous. And we want to glorify Him. Okay? What else? How else can we glorify God in our spending? Psalm 37. Psalm 37 and verse 21. Psalm 37 verse 21 says, The wicked borroweth, wicked borrows, and payeth not again. But the righteous, righteous showeth mercy and giveth. Got that repetition there on giving. We should pay our lawful debts. That's important. Let us not follow into that category of borrowing and not paying again. Okay? Over in 1 Timothy chapter 5, um, it makes painfully clear that we are to provide for the needs of those in our family, including those who are in our extended family who, who are without, um, without means. Um, concept there in First Timothy chapter five is talking about those who have widows or um, in their in their families. If their if their mother is a widow, if they have an aunt who's a widow, that the church shouldn't be responsible for providing their daily bread. That should be the family. But the verse that I'm interested in is verse eight says, "But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, and is worse than an infidel." Sometimes we use that word infidel and don't really know what it means. It just means a non-believer. It means somebody who does not follow Christ that we have to provide for our own. That's, that is part of our responsibility. Now, you have to have some discernment on what your own need versus what they just want, including yourself. All right? And I can't answer that question for you in an easy, bright-line way for every situation, but a, a kind of good rule of thumb question of can I live without this? The answer is yes. Pretty good odds it's a want. And that needs to factor into our priorities of spending. Okay? The needs need to come first. Alright? One other aspect, Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21 and verse 20. Proverbs.
Proverbs 21 verse 20 says, There is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spendeth it up. So we're talking about two sides of a ditch. One ditch is you spend everything that comes in. It's the concept of living paycheck to paycheck. There's no backup. There's no savings whatsoever. That As it comes out, it flows out. That's described as living foolishly. Do you know that I think it's over half, there's a study, of over half the people making six figures live paycheck to paycheck. Salary of over $100,000, and they're living paycheck to paycheck. This is our discipline and our training and our discernment on how we handle what the Lord has given us here. If we're not faithful with a little bit, we're not going to be faithful with a lot of it. Okay? So the wise here is described as there's, there's something left up. There's some savings element within his household. Okay? So one side of the ditch, you're driving along, you don't want to follow your tractor into the dike, right? off the dike, right? You don't want it to go into... You have no savings. Well, what's the other side? Heaping up treasure. All right, and this kind of leads into our fourth category that I want to consider. There's what is our attitude towards the Lord's funds? Are we trying to save so much that we're heaping up mountains of treasure? Right? Y'all watched the, the Hobbit the other day. And what was that dragon doing? He was sleeping under all his gold. He had these mounds of gold. Right? That's the other ditch. Go to uh, Matthew chapter six. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And really, this is a warning. A warning of being, being, beware of having a covetous attitude towards the Lord's funds. And when you start just the goal to amass more and more and more, you're loving it. You're desiring it. That's that love of money is the root of all meaning. Money is not evil in and of itself. It's just a tool. It's no more evil than your car is or your socket wrench. It's when you start to love it, it's when your heart is out of alignment. Okay? Let's jump back to Proverbs 23, because this putting your love and faith in riches, that's that's a foolish notion. That's building your house on that sand that just goes away. Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5, it says, Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. Your own wisdom says, well, I need to work hard for I can be rich. But cease from that wisdom. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings, and they fly away as an eagle toward heaven. That's a pretty good definition for fleeting riches, right? It's like they just get wings and fly away. Don't put your trust in that. Don't labor for that. In the next book after that, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and verse 10 says, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. You won't get to the point where it says, Okay, now I've got enough. Nor he that loveth abundance with increase. So if you love just stuff, well, you've got more stuff, you won't be satisfied. 
This also is vanity or worthless. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. Rich have a lot of friends. Those who want to take and you know, so when goods are increased, they increase that eat them. And what good thereof is the owners thereof? Okay, you've got all these masses, like that dragon sitting on the treasure. What good is it other than save the beholding of them with their eyes, just looking at it? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. Why? Because they're worried about it. What's the stock market going to do? What if it's don't come in? What am I? What am I? How make that right decision? This is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely riches for the owners there, riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. The amassing up of riches to keep it for yourself, just to look at it, says it hurts you. And so the caution to you in your attitude of your Lord's funds is beware, beware of covetousness, which is idolatry. Also, beware of being a lover of pleasure. Proverbs 21 and 17. He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. It's your expensive habits. If you are making provision for the flesh, you are going to be blowing your money. Go again to 23 and 20. Be not among wine bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh, for the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. We're overindulging in wine and in food and luxury, and we've got to beat out the best restaurants, and we've got to have all this. You're just. It's going to come to poverty and drowsiness, that kind of stupor that you fall into, it'll close you with rags. And you can see that in the, the parable that Jesus gives about the prodigal son, right? How did he spend, you know, his father had spent a lifetime amassing great wealth, and he gave the portion to the son, and what did he go and spend it on? Riotous living. That's kind of old school language. He went and partied. And partied and partied until he blown it all. There was nothing left. And he had to go work, you know, feeding pigs. And no one would give him anything, and so he's eating, you know, the leftovers of pig slop. Okay? Second Timothy three and four, you don't have to turn there. This is a description of wicked men. One of the descriptors of it is that they are lovers of pleasure. Okay? So beware of that. Alright? Beware of being covetous. Beware of being a lover of pleasure. And finally, over in Luke chapter 12. Beware of seeking independence from God through your riches. That's, a, that's another way of saying trusting in wealth. Trusting in riches. This is Luke chapter 12. Jesus gives his parable about the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. He had a great crop. He was already rich, but he had that year that he'd been waiting for. He thought, I've got so much stuff, what am I going to do? I don't have room in my bars to contain it. All right, I got a good idea. 
I'll tear them down. I'll make bigger ones to hold them. And then I'll stop. Right? I'll bestow my goods and I'll say to myself, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease. Relax. Eat, drink, and be married. Okay? What American concept does that sound like? Retirement! Now, am I saying that you have to work a secular job until the day you die? I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying you cannot make your goal in life to be independent from God. You need Him. You need your dependency on Him. You are dependent upon Him, whether you realize it or not. But if you put so much stock in saving up for a time and thinking, I don't have to work anymore, I can just take it easy, y'all, there's work for you to do. There's kingdom work all the time. Okay, you've, you've stopped your secular job. Guess what? Lord may give you a whole lot more work because you've got more availability than someone who's got to go to the 8 to 5. So it's not getting there so you can stop. And this is all about attitudes. Am I saying that it's wrong for you to retire from a secular job? I'm not saying that. But if your goal is to get to that point and then just ride off into the sunset, get the RV, and never come to church again, and you're, you may look at me like I'm crazy, but this happens. People take this American dream and say, this is the ideal without couching it in terms of, is this scriptural? Or am I being like this rich man? If I've got stuff for many years, I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm going to relax. What does the Lord say to that person? He says, God said unto them, thou fool." This night thy soul shall be required of thee, and who shall these things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Okay? So beware of trusting in riches. So we got some cautions there. Well, what's, what should we do? What's the positive? What should we do in the firm? What's a better attitude? Matthew 6, 33. How about seek ye first the kingdom of heaven? And God's righteousness? You say, well, we're supposed to be doing that all along, glorifying and praising God. Yes, you are. And the context of that chapter is about not worrying about your daily needs as much as putting God first. What else? What else should we have an, an attitude? What's a good attitude towards the Lord's money? I think you get a great example from the Apostle Paul over in Philippians. Learning... Contentment. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not something I'm born again. Now I'm content. <laughs> you wish. But we need to learn contentment. Verse uh, 11 of chapter 4 of Philippians. Not that I speak in respect of want. Now he, he had been, this is basically the end of a letter where it was a thank you note because they had sent him some support so he could continue most likely to pay for his hired house while he was under house arrest in Rome. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased. That means when I'm made poor. When things are hard, I can be content there. And I know how to bow. When the Lord raises me up, I can be content there too. And, and everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. So this is not the slogan to get you through the football game. This is to teach you contentment. That God's going to be with you and bless you to get through wherever you're at. 
So what should my attitude be? It was where I'm at, Lord. Let me find contentment here. If you change my circumstances up or down, okay, let me learn contentment there too. And finally, my attitude towards Lord's funds needs to be a faithfulness. Faithfulness in that which is the very least. And this is in Luke chapter 16. We talked about uh, that parable of the, the unfaithful steward um, given an account, and, and you know his solution was a very worldly solution. He says, "I'm about to get fired. I don't want to go dig trenches. That'd be embarrassing. I got to find another indoor job. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to have my my boss's creditors come. I'm going to lie about how much they owe them, and somebody's going to take me into their household to work for them." But verse ten, after all that, says, "He that is faithful in that which is least, the smallest thing." He that is faithful in the least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, that means money. If you haven't been righteous there, who will commit unto your trust true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That word mammon, that's that's basically an idol of money. You can serve God, or you can serve money. You can't do both. And so, but the real point that I want from that is that being faithful, these are the Lord's funds, and I need to be faithful to them in the littlest portion. Okay? So you may be thinking here, okay, Brother John, I've sat, I've sat through your money talk. That's all well and good in theory, but how do I take this and run with it? What do I do? Where, where do I start? Here's a suggestion. Start by taking an inventory. What assets has the Lord given you? What's coming in? Get a clear picture. Get clear records so that for yourself. So if the Lord came down to have a conversation with you and said, give me an account, you've got an answer and you can show them some diagrams. And then from that, make a plan. Both short term and long term. In that plan, you're going to be setting forth the priorities. And I want you to use God's Word to establish your priorities. And your long-term goal, whatever that is, it needs to be a God-honoring goal. I can't, I can't give that one for you. I'll give you a good example. You're not a debt. Right? And then you need to work that plan diligently. It doesn't do a lick of good if you write it all up and then you ignore it. Work it. Follow up with it. See where you're at. Track it. You've got a spouse, talk about it with them, encourage each other. After a month, adjust it. See where you can tweak it. Reevaluate. What have I learned in Scripture since then? Where do I need to adjust? This is, this is not a one-time thing. This is a constant process of learning how can I be a better steward of the Lord's funds? Can I stretch some areas over here? You know, this is really a want. Do I need it? Well, this is really making provision for the lust of the flesh. 
I should probably cut that off altogether. And most importantly, is that you have to study. You have to be diligent in your work. I can give you this high-level intro, but I can't give you the, you know, I've looked at, there's someone who says over 2,000 verses on money in Scripture. That's a whole lot of information. Some of it's your example, some of it's directly on point, but you need to be looking into God's Word and internalizing what He says and then applying it. And I can't do that for you. I can encourage you. I can give you starting points. I can answer questions. But if you want to be a good steward of God's funds, you need to be a good steward of His Word, of which you have access in your home, in your own language. You don't have to walk to town to go into the synagogue and ask to borrow a particular book for a minute, and hopefully it's there, or that they'll let you. I mean, you have free access. They're extremely cheap. So study. Study to be diligent. To learn and see if what you're prioritizing matches up with God's Word. So I pray the Lord will bless these few thoughts. So our topic the past two weeks has been on stewardship. We looked at it in general with the understanding that God is the divine owner of all things as the Creator and specifically ourselves as our Redeemer who purchased him, purchased to Himself us. And everything that we have is His. And we are to use it for two main purposes. That is to glorify and praise Him. Last week we looked specifically at how can we steward our finances. And this morning... I'd like to look at how we steward our time. Stewardship of time. Again, in the context, our purpose is to glorify and praise God. So how are we glorifying and praising God in our using time? You know, in stewardship, the working definition we're using is the responsible and careful management of something entrusted to me. In this case, we're looking at the entrustment of the time. Okay, Your times are completely in the Lord's hands. Every breath, every heartbeat, every new minute is a new gift. None of it was promised. So how are we using it? Okay. So I'd like to look at a couple verses to... Get us thinking in the right uh, frame of mind. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. And in verse 16. Says. Uses the expression. Redeeming the time. Because the days are evil. Now we're jumping in mid-clause. And we know we don't want to do that. So we'll read the whole sentence. Back in 15 it says. See then that ye walk circumspectly. Not as fools. But as wise redeeming the time because the days are evil. So if we are not redeeming the time and we're walking without a sober-minded head, then we're acting foolish. But to redeem the time and to walk circumspectly is to be wise. Be wise. Redeeming the time. 
What does that word redeem mean? It means, literally it means to buy up, to buy up the time. But figuratively it has the idea of to rescue from loss. Do you ever have time that's just lost? That's just wasted? That just seems to fritter away? Well, the idea here is you're being intentional with your time and how you're using it. Using it in wisdom, sober-mindedly, and ultimately you're serving your purposes, right? Your purpose to glorify and praise God. So redeem the time, for the days are evil. Okay? The days are evil here, and time is precious here. One day will be where the days are not evil, and time won't matter anymore. Because there's no limit. But here it's finite. There is a definite amount. You have a definite amount of heartbeats and breaths that you're going to take in this time while the days are evil. These evil days are not going to encourage you to follow the Lord. They're going to hinder you. Satan will do everything in his power to trip you up, to discourage you, to veer you off the path of righteousness. The days are evil. So don't expect the culture around you to be an encouragement to you and you following the Lord. You've got to be contrary to it. Going against the flow. Kids, you remember that little song about steer, steer, steer your ship? Against the worldly tide, right? If you're going down the Mississippi, it's pretty easy to go with the flow, right? You're going to end up in the Gulf. If you're going against that tide, you've got to have some pretty powerful force, right? There's big old paddle boats had those big old wheels churning, and they had to burn a lot of coal, I guess, to power it. And if you ran out of coal, that thing stopped, and it'd float back. Right? So you need to be going against that flow of the world pushing you down, and you need to be pursuing the Lord the whole time. Redeeming the time, for the days are evil. Okay, and again, the concept here we're going to be looking at is the stewardship of this time, the careful and responsible management of of the Lord's time. Does it belong to you? No, nothing belongs to you. It's all His. But it's been entrusted to you to use it for His glory. So redeem the time for the days are evil. If you go um, to Colossians, so two books over, Colossians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 4, and in verse 5, you get the same expression used again. Colossians 4 and 5, Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Okay, well, earlier we talked about walking wise, wisdom, not foolishly, for the days are evil. Here it says, Walk in wisdom towards them that are without, redeeming the time. Those that are without, that's referring to those that are outside of the church. Okay? That refers to how you're governing yourself. Are you being a good and godly example outside when you're not just here? Or are you allowing their influence, the worldly influence, to change what you do or say? You need to be wise. The foolish man is led any old way, but the wise man knows where he's headed and governs himself accordingly. So walk in wisdom towards them that were without redeeming the time. Again, to rescue that time from loss. All right. In our time from James, go to James real quick. James chapter 4. Verse 
we had the admonition not to just blatantly make plans for the future and say this is what we're going to do. Right? James 4, 13-15 says, Go to ye that say, so this is an individual who's saying, Today or tomorrow, we'll go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Okay? How often do y'all make plans? I'm going to do this, and in this many years, this is what's going to happen. Right? Do we know the future? Do we know what will happen? No. It says, Whereas ye know not what will be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor. Right? You're boiling tea out there. you got one little steam bubble come up. You see that gas? And then, you ever going to see it again? Nope. It's gone. That's your entire life summed up there. It is even as a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. And so the point of all this is, is tomorrow promised? No. So everything we're doing, planning in the future has to be, if the Lord allows me to live, and it pleases the Lord, we'll do such and such. But tomorrow is not promised. Y'all, how often do we act like it is? Redeeming the time now. You can't redeem tomorrow's time. You don't know if that will be given. But you've been given this minute, this heartbeat, this morning to glorify and praise your God. Now, if tomorrow's not promised and I'm only given this heartbeat, what does that mean could happen? I could die! (laughs) So we need to have a proper perspective about death. As Christians, that's not something you have to be afraid of. Everybody got real quiet. I heard one amen. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Let me tell you why. Hebrews 2. We're going to jump in in verses 13 and 14. Describing the children that have been given to Jesus. Behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Verse 14. For as much then as the children's children are partakers of flesh and blood, you and I, we are flesh and blood. He also himself, Jesus himself, likewise took on part of the same. He came into this world, born of the virgin, he took on humanity, right? He took on flesh and blood. Why? That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, destroy the devil, and Deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You were in bondage to sin and the fear of death. But Jesus Christ came into this world and He was a victorious Savior without a question, without an asterisk, without any buts, ifs, ands, or thens, or maybes. Jesus came and accomplished the mission that he set out to do, is that he shall save his people from their sins, Matthew one twenty one, and he did! And so, when you die, your spirit goes to heaven, you will be with glory, and when he comes back, and all the last trumpet, everything's wrapped up, however that looks like, I don't exactly know, but I know he's going to do it, then we'll have our reuniting with our bodies that went to the dirt, they will be changed, 
They will be immortal bodies, and they'll be reunited with your spirit, and that's where you'll be for forever. So do you have to fear death? No! In this world, when people say, well, you need to start living like you're dying, they mean start serving yourself because you may not have an opportunity to serve yourself tomorrow. That is not at all what I'm advocating. I'm saying live like you're dying because you are dying. Man's born to die. So today is the day that you get to serve God. You get to glorify Him. You get to praise Him. And everything that He's given you for the purpose of glorifying and praising Him, use it! Now! Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till when such and such, when I'm in a different season of life, when I've got this, when I'm not that stressed, when whatever your excuse is, no! Now! Serve now! I don't have to be afraid of death. The fact that it might not be, you know, tomorrow's not promised, I don't have to fear that. You know, I could get cancer today and I could be gone tomorrow. And you know what? It'd be sad for y'all. I'd be better off. That's what Paul would say is to, to, to live is Christ, to serve Christ. But to die, that's great gain. Great gain. And so, yes, we're sad when we lose somebody. It's because we miss them being with us here. But we don't have to be sad for them. They don't need your sadness. They're not sad. They're with their Savior, and they're perfectly happy, perfectly content, they don't have any of the infirmities that we have. They're infinitely better off. And we will be infinitely better off. But we are given a precious commodity of time here to serve God. So how are we using it? Or are we wasting it? Okay? So, sometimes we get lethargic. Sometimes we get sleepy. Sometimes in our Christian walk, we just kind of check out and float along. So go to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, and that knowing that the time, and knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. There is an urgency to wake up from this stupor, from this idleness, from the lethargy, you know, the sin and things of this world, the cares of the world, it can just weigh you down and weigh you down and weigh you down until all you're seeing is just the problems that are around you, and that's all you see. My, my, my physical health, my, my problem, whatever they are. And I lose sight of why I'm here. I'm here because a God of the universe wanted me to exist. And He gave me new life. So now that I know that He exists, and I can believe what He said and what His Son did, and I can serve Him fervently because He's promised me that He's going to give me a massive inheritance that I can't even really comprehend, and that's what I'm looking forward to. And so all the problems of this world are just peanuts, right? Or Cracker Jacks. But, you know, that was, was, everything here is just so insignificant compared to Him and compared to what He's promised us. And so... Knowing the time. Well, what's the time? That means the time could be Christ coming now. Right? I may not even finish this sermon. That would be great for y'all. Right? Because then you just say, there it is. All right. And everything is infinitely better for every child. Every child of God. So now is the high time to awake out of sleep. So, if you're sleeping in your Christian walk this morning, 
If you're sleeping in the pew this morning, wake up! Now is the time. All right? So, over in Matthew 12 and 13, there is this kind of scary, or maybe sobering would be a better word. Matthew 12 and 13, description about what will have to happen regarding the idle words that we've spoken. Matthew 12 and 36. 35. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. Okay. We talked about counting as a, a stewardship concept. If we have to give an account of idle words spoken, that which is vain or worthless, do you think there's going to be an accounting for the idle minutes? The ones that were wasted, that were frittered, that were pursuing the lust of the flesh, that were bringing shame to God's name? I think we need to be very cautious and wise in how we spend the Lord's minutes that He's given us not to allow them to just be idly wasted. Okay? When we were at Brother Frank's uh, last Sunday, he made a comment that was, you know, he makes a lot of funnies, trying to just quips, and, but, but he made a very serious comment about we have to be careful about what we're teaching. We're all teachers. And either we're setting a good example for someone, or we're not. <laughs> we're setting a bad example. Okay, and so, can someone look at my life and say, that's a good example of using the Lord's time? Or do they have to look at me as someone of, don't follow that. That's a bad pattern. Okay. Again, remember our purpose. Here, why am I here? You're here to glorify and praise God. That's why you're here. And so what you spend your time on should do that. It should glorify Him. And you should be praising Him in it. Alright? That's the allotted time that we have. It should be in accordance with His will. And how do you find out what that is? In accordance with His Word. It's not your subjective emotion. Okay? So we need to be in the Word. Alright, so. Let's talk about prioritization. How do we figure what comes first? How do we build from what we got and then what gets left, right? This is, this is a process we all do, consciously or unconsciously, when we're building out our schedule for the day. I've got a certain amount of time. If I was awake all day, I think it's 1,440 minutes. You should not be awake for 24 straight hours. That's not wise, as we'll see. But assuming that you've slept 8 hours, you've got 960 minutes left. How do you allocate that time? What comes first? Okay. I'm going to charge you and say that God has to come first. An idol is anything that you put ahead of God in your life. And so if you're not putting God first in your life, whatever you are putting, that's the idol that you need to tear down. That's the thing you love more than God. That's the thing you're more concerned about than God. If you say, well, I'm devoted to 
and it's anything other than God, you know what devoted means? I worship. It does. Okay? Putting God first. And that's that's explicit in our instructions in Matthew 6, 33. Let's turn and look at that. Matthew 6 and 33. But seek ye first. First meaning not only first in time, but primary in importance. Seek ye first. Two things. The kingdom of God and His righteousness. What are you to seek first? What are you supposed to use your time first with? The kingdom of God and God's righteousness. To it, seek it. To seek it. Seek can literally mean to worship. Okay? We can understand that. That's what we're trying to do here this morning. It can also mean to desire the thing that you're interested in, the thing that you're seeking after, the thing that you want to know more about, the thing that you want to do, you want to please. It can also mean to inquire. Or what would you have me to do? Okay. So the kingdom of God. Go to Matthew 13 and 44. There's a parable here. Matthew 13 and verse 44. <clears throat> the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, that which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth the field. So this man, in the parable, imagine he's walking out in the field, and he finds this wonderful treasure. He puts it back in the field. He go finds out who owns the field, and he says, I want to buy that field from him. And whatever the price was, he buys it. He sells everything else that he had in his life because that field became the most important thing to him. Okay? And you say, well, that's kind of strange. You know, why does he love treasure that much? Well, the point is, that's how our love should be for the kingdom of heaven, for the kingdom of God. That everything else in our life, we should be willing to lay it aside to pursue that first. Okay. That's kind of radical. It's not even kind of. It is radical. That is a level of love and devotion that's higher than what I and you are doing now. Okay? It was the most important. All the other stuff was behind it. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. But not only that, you're also seeking God's righteousness Himself. Okay? Go to Matthew 5 and 6. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to this. Matthew 5 and 6 says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after what? After after food and drink? After care and security? After no. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness. After God's righteousness. Wanting that righteousness in their life. And what does it say? They shall be filled. Filled with the righteousness of God. Seeing the righteous path. 
walking down it with the other members of kingdom of heaven. They desire, they hunger and thirst for His righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we need to hunger and thirst for God's righteousness in our life and in how we spend our time. So how do you spend those 1,400 minutes in the 24-hour day? Or how do you spend that 960 that you're awake? I would submit to you that as you're building your daily and weekly schedule, the first thing you need to build in is that when you wake up, you spend time with the Lord. You need to personally commune and worship and praise your Lord. Not for your spouse's benefit, not for your children's benefit, not for anybody else other than what He has done for you and that He's the most important in your life. Go to Psalm 63. Psalm 63 and in verse 1. This is a psalm of David. Psalm 63 and verse 1 says, O God, Thou art my God. Early will I seek Thee. My soul thirsteth for Thee. My flesh longeth for Thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Are you hungering and thirsting for your God? Are you desiring to seek Him early? Or is He something we just kind of give lip service to? Seek the Lord early. Let it be the first thing. As you're starting to build, what's the most important use of my time? Use my time directly in communing with the Lord. Now, we won't turn there, but in Mark chapter 1 and verse 35, Jesus would leave His disciples and He would rise well before dawn and He would go out to be by Himself and He would pray with the Father. Who had a closer connection with the Father than Jesus? Right? And yet He still took time to go by Himself and pray. I don't think there was a time where He didn't have a direct communication, but He still took time to go apart by Himself and pray. And He did it early. So, as first things first, this would be a first. The priority, this should be high. Okay? So that direct communing with the Lord, you're fellowshipping with Him. Okay? In prayer. But not only in prayer, you've got to have time in His Word. Go to Romans chapter 1. If you're seeking God's righteousness... Seek His kingdom as righteousness. That's the command. That's, that's not a suggestion. <laughs> God didn't say, if you feel like it, if it's convenient, seek. No, it's never going to be convenient. Not by the world standard, not by your own human standards. But in Romans 1, 16 and 17, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. All right? We're talking about the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein... What's the therein? In the gospel. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Where are you going to learn the most about the righteousness of God? 
In His Word! In the Gospel! In the Good News! Well, I just feel so close to God when I'm out in the fishing boat and, you know, seeing nature. Nature's great! You can learn and you can appreciate His creation, but that's not where you're going to learn the most about God's righteousness. Right? In His Word. The righteousness of God revealed in His Word. Also over in 1 Peter 2 and 2. And y'all know this reference. 1 Peter 2 and 2 is that you should desire, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the Word. Why? That you may grow thereby. Well, part of that's recognition is that we got some growing to do. We're not fully grown. Paul would say he hadn't attained there yet. He wasn't perfect yet. He was still following after. And Paul's way farther down the road than I am. There's growth. How are we going to grow? Desire the sincere milk of the Word. That word sincere, it means unadulterated, pure, undeceitful. Is there anything else in this world that you can go and look at and know this is pure? This doesn't have any error. It's it's, it's undeceitful. There's nothing else. But you have it. Go to it. Desire it. Build your time in prayer and in seeking the Word. Go to the very first psalm. Very first psalm. Psalm 1. Right? Psalm 1 and verse 1. Let's see if I can get to it. There's Job. There it is. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Okay, these are the man, he's blessed if he's not doing these things. What's verse 2? But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Delight, pleasure. Psalm 1, verse 2, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Are you going to meditate on something you're not reading? Are you going to meditate on something that you know is not important to you? You don't really care. But you know who wrote the word, all of it, and you know it's written for you. Read it. Delight in it. Meditate on it. Spend your time in a way that glorifies and praises God. Do you think any minute where you're spent reading God's word is a wasted minute? Now sometimes I can get woefully distracted. But that's not my efforts in the Word that's wasted. It's my distractions. Right? So put God first. Right? So that's, that's our personal communion and seeking God first with our time. Very important. I think Scripture is very clear on that. Okay? What about outside of ourselves? How are we putting God first? Well, that's worshiping God with others. Right? That's what we're doing here this morning, as you're building out your week and your time, is the assembly of the saints called out assembly? That's the that's definition of a church. Are they meeting together to worship the Lord? If they are, let me be there. That's a great use of my time. If I'm choosing to do anything else in place of it, I'm choosing a second or third or fourth priority over the first. How about family devotion? That's a good use of time with others. How about taking opportunities to gather in fellowship with other saints? This is not formal corporate worship, but this is time of I'm taking time to get together to know that 
I can encourage somebody, they can encourage me, and that we can both walk closer to the Lord together. That concept of iron and sharpened irons, guess what? That probably is unpleasant for both irons a little bit because you have to have a little bit knocked off, right? You get sharpened by having those things that aren't so good. So sometimes, well, you hurt my feelings. Well, maybe they needed to be hurt. Now, that doesn't mean that we always go about it the right way. But our intention should be to be provoking, provoking one another to good works, right? That's Hebrews 10. I, I, you know, we, <laughs> we read that in Hebrews a lot. So much that it almost becomes a, a catchphrase for don't miss church. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. Let's go back up and see where this sentence starts. Verse 23. Hebrews 10 and 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Okay? That's the first thing. That we made a profession of faith of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and that we're going to be a follow Him. Hold fast to that! Don't let it go! It's not something that I can pick up today and lay down and be okay. Hold it fast! For He is faithful that promised. He doesn't change. The faith that you have, that you're believing in what He did and that He's going to be with you, there's no changing with that. So you can't say, well, I'm unhappy with, with how my relationship with this God, that God's changed. something He's let me down. No, He sure has not. Hold fast to our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And, so that's part one, and let us consider one another, be thoughtful of one another, studying one another, caring about one each other, to do what? To provoke or incite or encourage unto love and to good works. So as you're fellowshipping together, you should be encouraging and inciting one another to more love. That was Paul's prayer in Philippians. That was my personal reading time this morning. Sometimes I fail at that, y'all. I'm trying to take what I'm teaching and apply it in my own life. I'm not saying I've got it perfectly. I don't often I miss out on that personal communion time. I may get up and have time with Megan, and I get over here and I'm studying for a sermon or for a Bible study, and sometimes I get into kind of the I'm laboring at it, but I'm forgetting to feed and convict me. So I'm not saying I've got this perfect. But this morning, I read my personal time and I read the book of Philippians and it was great! It was so encouraging! Sometimes this job can feel like a job and that's not good for you if this feels like a job to me. But I was reading and I was so encouraged and you know what he was praying for? This loving church that sent their minister all the way to encourage them. He needed you know assistance. They sent it. The guy nearly died on the trip. It was a big deal. He sent in a thank you back letter. What is, he, what is his prayer for them? That this really good and really loving church would do what? That they would love more! And to grow in knowledge more. And in discernment and judgments. The word judgment, but the package of all that is that you have discernment. So you can see what is excellent. There are many good ways to spend your time. But brothers and sisters, if we're prioritizing right, we'll choose the most excellent. Right? So we're learning about discernment. Provoke one another to love the good works. Verse 25, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is. There is a temptation to think, well, my relationship with the Lord is just one-on-one. I don't need anybody else. That is not how He set up His church. This is not a solo sport. All right, there is. Sports the Olympics. There's just one person. They're competing. They do great. They fail. Whatever. No, that's not how He set this up. This is a team. And this ain't even a relay race. We're all running together. And encouraging one another. So don't forsake the assembly. If the assembly is gathered together, go! That is the best use of your time. 
but exhorting one another. That's encouraging, inviting, and so much more as you see the day approaching. What day is that referring to? As you see the day of Christ approaching, when He comes back, more and more, encouraging in love and good works, gathering together, worshiping God, exhorting one another, encouraging one another, as you can see the day approaching. When time stops, all practical purposes, that's the end of time. Time's up. Time's a measurement between two points. Well, after the day of Christ, it really doesn't matter. There's no ending point. Okay? Provoking one of the good works. So, so part of building your day and thinking about your time is how am I going to worship God, glorify God individually, personally, and with others? And there's two elements to that. There's one with those within the church, and then there are those that are outside the church. And there's two very different needs, right? Ones who are already professed their love of Christ and are following after Him, they need encouragement because just like you, they're sinners. They get distracted. They get down. Be a good example. Be an encourager. How about those that are outside the church? Right? Well, they need to hear the good news. And you need to be capable of sharing it. Right? Our outside ministry should be more than, well, you just need to come to church with me. Well, what would I hear if I got there? You should be able to answer that. The good news of Jesus Christ. Do I expect you to have everything, chapter and verse, locked down? No. Not at this point. Let's talk again in five years. We'll see. But you have the good news of Jesus Christ. You have it. You're personally involved in it. We need to be able to articulate that. Okay. Will has a familiarity with tractors that I, I can't I can't speak it. I don't live it. It doesn't a lot of what he says I gotta look at it. What do what do hickey you talking about here? It's not part of my life and so I can't speak it yet. Sometimes in our Christian walk, the gospel's not part of our life yet. We've been born again, but Lord, if we just keep it over here in a box and over on these few hours for these few days and everything else, it doesn't matter. Y'all, that ain't right. It ain't good. It should be part of our life. Every moment and every day. It should affect how we interact and what we say and what we do and how we spend our time. Okay? So, how will I reach out to someone in my life and I'm not just saying the chance meetings in Walmart, that's fine if you've got that ability. But more often than not, it's the people that are already in your life that you've chosen to just kind of... There's someone, there's a scenario, the Lord open doors to share the good news for His sheep who need to hear it. Spend that time and be ready to answer. Right? How can you get that? Spend the time in the Word. Prepare. Okay, so that's, that is one piece of spending our time. It's directly in communion with the Lord, in worship of the Lord, in service of the Lord. That's one piece. Okay? What would I rank by my understanding of Scripture would come underneath that as the second priority? I would say family. Those that God has entrusted you as His steward in the care and responsibility of that you need to give time to them. You need to spend your Lord's time on Him first and then on those that He's put into your care. 
Okay, family time. And so as you wake up in the morning thinking, how many minutes am I going to invest in my family today? How many minutes? And I'm talking about real time. I'm talking about quality time where I'm engaged, where I'm there, I'm focused. Not where I'm physically sitting there, but I'm so exhausted. Or I'm thinking about other things that I'm not really there. How can I lead my spouse or my children or whoever it is in my family that I'm encouraging that day, ministering to, serving them, if I'm not giving them my attention, if I'm not giving them my love, right? So something to consider, if I'm actively got my personal time with the Lord and I'm married, then I need to build in a time with my spouse and the Lord in Bible study and in prayer. If I'm the husband, that's my job as a leader to make sure that my wife is learning and that our marriage is founded, founded, rooted and founded in the word of truth. If it's founded on anything else, y'all, it's on sinking sand. And the storms of this world are going to knock it. If I have children, I need to be put in a priority on having a family time of devotion. And I would say this is in addition to spousal time where you're teaching and admonishing and guiding your children. Parents have the primary responsibility for training their children. That's not me. That's not teacher. It's parents. Okay? Particularly in spiritual things. Can I really do that if I'm not intentionally making time to do that? Again, I'm preaching the choir here because often Megan will do that in the course of their homeschooling day where they have Bible time, but do I follow up again in the evenings with another family devotion time? Often that gets missed. I need to do better in that. Okay? I need to be intentionally focused on how I'm spending my minutes with my family because the best use of the time with them is in the Word with them. Okay? And ultimately, I need to remember that as a leader in the family, I'm my family's servant. That's, that's the model for leadership in the Scripture. It's a servant leader. You're there to minister to them all. all right? And so I need to be considering this day, how am I going to teach and what am I going to teach? It should be intentional. right? How am I going to encourage their walk with the Lord? It's not just teaching in general. Megan has that responsibility, teaching in general. <laughs> But I need to teach about the things of the Lord. He's going to work on their hearts, but I need to be preparing, teaching their minds so that when the Lord does work in their heart, that they're, they've got all this treasured up, right? pouring into them. Um, Deuteronomy 6, 7-9 gives you a real vivid picture about the importance of teaching our children. Deuteronomy 6, verses 7-9 through and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. This is talking about the Lord's commandments and the law, but teaching about Him. The same applies to us, that we have to teach them. You shall teach them diligently. That word diligently is interesting. It literally means to pierce. Right? It kind of gives me the idea of like a tattoo where you're piercing in and it stays with you. All right? Teaching diligently unto thy children, and shall talk of them when thou sittest in thy house. So if you're sitting in your house, you're talking about the things of the Lord. 
When you're walking by the way, when you're in the car ride going, are you talking about the things of the Lord? When thou liest down, when it's bedtime, are you praying together? When you're rising up, are you praying together? That shall bind them for a sign upon your hand. That's like carrying a flag that says, I'm following Christ. And for a frontlets between the eyes, it's like it's on your forehead. That God and Christ and His Word are that important to you and that your children can see that. That takes a lot of effort, right? That takes some time. Is it worth it? Yeah! It's His time. Use it in His labors. Alright? So, we've gone through two priorities. Time with God directly. Time serving those that He's put under your care and charge, your family. Third one, it's a big one. A lot of hours spent on this, and this is this is times of labor. Okay? And the question I want you to consider is how many minutes or hours am I willing to sell in order to have funds to care for my family's needs? Because there's a trade-off. For every additional hour that you're working to earn funds, it's time that's not being spent in seeking God first, directly and in being sent with your family. It's a consideration. And there is a real danger, boys, as you grow up to be men, there is a danger of overworking. Okay? What do I mean by overworking? I mean where you're spending so so many hours chasing money that you are neglecting your time with God directly and you're neglecting your family. Okay? Go to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. Often we jump into this psalm and just go to verse 3. Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is His reward. Oh, it's great. Children are from God and they're wonderful. Read the whole thing. Verse 1. Except the Lord build the house, they that labor, they labor in vain that build it. That house is your life. Everything that you're doing, your career, what you're managing, your spousal relationship, your relationship with your kids, everything about your life, except the Lord builds it, they labor in vain that build it. That person who's laboring hard, they could be laboring really hard, putting a lot of effort into it, being really diligent, but the Lord's not in the matter. Why is the Lord not in the matter? Probably because you're not seeking the Lord. You're not doing things that glorify Him. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. Verse 2, it is vain for you to rise up early and to sit up late to eat the bread of sorrows. That word sorrows literally means toils, labors, <coughs> grievous effort. So it's, it's vain to rise up early, sit up late, eating those breads of sorrows, for he giveth his beloved sleep. So there's a balance. It's not saying run yourself into the ground burning both ends of the candle trying to do it all. It's too much. Verse 3, low children are a heritage of the Lord. You have to have time to be there for those children. They're a heritage from the Lord. They're given from the Lord and the fruit of the womb are His reward. You want Him building the house? Take care of what He's given. Value it. As arrows are in the hands of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that have his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gates. You get this wonderful highlight of, of the beauty of family as God's designed it. And the recognition is that you can neglect it by putting too much hours, selling too many of the Lord's minutes 
seeking sorrows, bread of sorrows, the toil, the cares of this world. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Now go, go back to Matthew six. We really, we just need that whole thing. Matthew six and a verse twenty-four is where we start. And the concept I want you to be thinking about is, is, is caring too much about the labors of this world. No man can serve two masters. Matthew 6 and 24. No man can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and the pursuit of money and earthly riches. You can't have it both ways. If you're going to serve the money, it says you're going to hate God. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is the life is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? Take no thought. Don't have the cares and anxieties over the eating and the drinking and the clothing. Right? These, these are your daily needs, right? I'm supposed to provide these for your family. Yes, but it's got to be in perspective. Take no thought for your life. Behold the fowls of the air. So we're looking at the birds. They don't sow. They're not out planting crops or reap or gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Do the birds eat kids? Yeah. Are you better than birds? Did Jesus come and save the birds? No! He came and saved His children. And yet He feeds them. Do you think He's not also going to feed you? He will! Which of you, by taking thought... So here's the value of worry, right? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto a stature? I really wanted to be six feet tall when I was still growing. I really did. And I, for all my worry and mourning, I could not get six feet tall. It just didn't happen. I quit growing. And by stressing over it, I can't change a thing. I don't have that power. Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit under a stature? No one. And why take ye thought for raiment? What are we going to wear? Consider the lilies of the field. Look at the flowers out there. They're so pretty. Do they grow and toil or spin? Do they make their clothing? No. But it says their clothing's better than all that Solomon had. If God so clothed the grass, which today is and tomorrow is just cast in the oven, shall he not more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewith shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. Every normal person, every man who's been bored cares about those things. He's saying that you can be different. Because you get to know that your Heavenly Father knows you need these things. And that He's going to provide them. Because that's when 33 says, Your Heavenly Father knows you need all these things. But, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and of God, the kingdom of God, and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. They'll be given unto you. You'll have what you need. It may not be what you want. Your wants may be wrong. Often our wants are wrong. They're misplaced in caring too much about the here and now. Take therefore, because of all that, take no thought for the morrow. Don't worry about tomorrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. 
sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Redeem the time now. Don't spend your time wasting worrying about tomorrow. Don't feel like, oh, I've got to work more and I've got to work more and I've got to work more in order because I've got all these, these needs and I can't go to church. I can't do this or whatever. No. Seek His kingdom. Seek His righteousness first. He's going to care for you. He's going to provide for you. You may not feel that and you may not believe that at this moment, but that's what God's Word says. And so I can stand assured on the truth and authority of His Word. And so in that respect, if you can't feel that at this moment, your feelings are wrong. And Lord, like that father cried, Lord, help my unbelief. The little boy who needed to be healed, the disciples couldn't heal him. They took him to Jesus. He said, oh, ye of little faith, how long shall I be with you? And they want to know, why couldn't they heal him? This one comes out just by prayer and fasting, but he cast him out and asked the Father, do you believe? He says, Lord, I do believe, but help thou mine unbelief. There's portions of us that need that help. So I pray that the Lord will help you to believe that, that if you're seeking the kingdom first and God's righteousness, He's going to take care of your physical needs. If He has already provided for your eternal life, don't you think He's going to take care of the temporary one? So, if I am charged with seeking God's righteousness and His kingdom first, and I know that I I have to labor. I'm not saying don't work. But I need to set boundaries. I need to set expectations, and I need to do it in conformance with God's words of what is a reasonable amount of hours that I sell to get funds. And I can help myself in that, of making that a lower number, by not accumulating unreasonable debts, ones that I can't service under my current income, at my current level. If I can't pay for it, and I've got to work more and work more, then I was not wise in accruing that debt. So don't allow debts to accrue that you can't uh, handle um, at your current reasonable workload. And recognize this. This may be hard for some people here. No job is sacred. Okay? Does it prevent you from performing your first two priorities of to God and to your family? If those often have to come beneath that job, then that job is a problem. It can either be changed or it can be left. No job is sacred. Something that's sacred is that which is worshipped. Well, I'm devoted to my job. You just told me you're worshipping your job. Well, I'm called to do such and such. If you are called to do such and such and it prevents you from serving God first and serving your family, I submit to you, you weren't called by God to do it. You may have been called, maybe yourself and maybe something else, but it wasn't God doing the calling. He doesn't call you to go worship and glorify something else. Okay? So, and other things you need to think about is efficiency. Working hard, well, am I working in a way that maximizes my output so I can minimize my time? So there are ways you can tweak how you labor so I can get more accomplished. And often that's being more diligent and having less kind of slack time so that I can work overall less time. Okay. Now, there is a close link between labor and what I'm going to categorize as the fourth one, and that is physical rest. God created your bodies to require physical rest. And so the question we have to ask is, am I giving my body enough rest? Now, if you don't think this is important, in God's creation, He set up a pattern of taking one day aside 
to rest. Now, under the Old Testament law, they were commanded, it was very strict, they had to observe the Sabbaths. When I say that, that was the one in the week, there was the new months, there were different, all these various things. And so in the New Testament, you say, you're not under the Old Testament law, you don't have to observe the Sabbaths. But, is it wise for you to follow the pattern that God set all the way back at creation of taking a day, and here we set aside the Lord's day, the first day of the week, give it directly to Him and how you worship, and then resting with your physical bodies. Would I submit to you that that's wise? Absolutely. What are some signs that I've gone too far and I'm not giving my body enough rest? Well, am am I too tired to play with my little kids? Am I too tired to sit and have a conversation with my spouse? If I am uh, too tired to read my Bible, (laughs) if I'm always looking for those extra shifts, extra side hustles, and that's the most important thing, regardless of how tired it makes me, that's probably a problem too. Do I fall asleep while actually having a conversation with someone? Or here on the pew? Do you know? If I'm falling asleep anywhere other than my bed, there may be a problem. Maybe a medical issue too. I'm not being all-encompassing here, but there may be a problem with me not getting enough rest. Okay? God described the Sabbath. Jesus was, you know, they were getting on to the disciples for, you know, mashing some, you know, grain together and eating it on the Sabbath and the Pharisees are all up in arms and he instructed them saying that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Because the Pharisees are like, well, you've got to observe the Sabbath. It's like they were worshiping the Sabbath. He says, no, it's the other way around, Bubba. God created the Sabbath so that man would have that time of rest. And so, rest is important. You know, How do you spend that extra time on your Sunday afternoon? If you're using it for extra time just to work, I'm going to submit to you, that's probably not the best use of your time. You probably need to rest. All right? And again, that involves studying God's Word to see where that balance is. Because guess what, guys? There are ditches. right? You can say, well, I don't have any problem with overworking and I like rest. <laughs> So much so that I don't work at all and I sleep 12 hours a day, right? That's the other ditch, right? That's, that's you know, Go read Proverbs. Look for words like idleness, sloth, sluggard. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's another ditch. And so this, this involves discernment of, Lord, how can I apply your word here and in now and have the right balance and glorify you in my life? That does not say go home and sleep all the time. Preacher said, I need to rest. Well, rest for 16 hours today and get up tomorrow and do another 16 just in case. Not saying that. And, you know, maybe this is not a problem that adults tend to struggle with, but maybe if you're a child, maybe you're a teenager and you don't really like laboring in your education. Well, I want to put minimal time in my education and max into sleeping. And y'all, met, y'all are just now getting it there. You know, I remember those times when it was like 12 o'clock on Saturday and I was really grumpy. Somebody woke me up. How dare you? Man, I was I was not a pleasant child, right? But that's that's going too far to the other way, right? We need to labor in our studies, right, kids? That's y'all's job. I want to see some eyeballs. Yes. At this age, you're not working. That's not your primary job. Your primary labor is in your studies, and so you need to be given the appropriate amount of time and effort in that. Not being idle, not devoting everything to sleep. All right. There's your plugs for your homeschooling moms. <laughs> Right, but I'm serious. Read Proverbs, and you will see a balance. We'll see a balance between overworking and not working enough, between being lazy and being diligent. And it's just a matter of figuring out, where in my life, Lord, am I not there yet? Show me, and what? have the courage to do it. Like Brother Parrish prayed this morning, that I've got to apply it. Head knowledge is fine, but it doesn't really show up unless I take it and run with it. Okay? 
All right. So we got four categories we've gone through: you know, direct communion and devotion with God. All right. We've got time with family. We've got time that we got to spend in our labor, whether that's a job or whether that's education or whatever it is. There's physical rest. And then I'm going to give you what I'm just kind of doing as a catch-all last category that I would describe as recreation, diversion, entertainment, vacations, whatever it is, that kind of other category, right? And within that, I think you could really break it into two. One will be active and one is inactive as far as what is, what is preferred. You know, if you've got an active activity, it's got some, you know, physical movement in it, well, that's good for the body that God's given you. If you're having, you know, an active conversation with somebody, it may not be directly spiritually related, but you're interacting with your family. Um, that's great. Um, if you're being productive, you could be out working on your landscaping. Whatever it is, there are those things that you can be doing and recreating in where there's some level of mental stimulation and positive return on it. And then there's the other level that's really just garbage. Like it's kind of like the, the high fructose current corn syrup of spending your time. Like there's really no return on your investment. It's just that turning on the TV and just vegging out. Well, we're all sitting together. It's family time. You haven't said a word to each other in two hours and you're vegging out. I wouldn't say that's really quality family time. That's vegging out together. But... Yeah, so those kind of inactive, mind-numbing, passive things, the things that you just fill your time with, <coughs> scrolling on tablets or phones, um, movies, video games, kids, uh, 24-hour news, not a whole lot of mental stimulation there, just emotional, trying to get your blood pressure up. Sports, again, watching. There's, there's some return for actively engaging in it and using your body, but... Just watching, binge watching, binge watching anything. Um, this is what I kind of say is that's the, the lowest priority. All right? Y'all, we need to be known for our moderation. Let your moderation be known. And for your self-control. Temperance. <coughs> the ability to say, these things aren't inherently evil, but in large quantities, they're not helpful. Okay. Choosing how I'm going to spend the Lord's time. I don't really want to have to account for the minutes that I've wasted on Netflix. <laughs> or whatever it is. Whatever your, your, your preference where, where those hours just get, or minutes just wasted away. Right? Flittered away. Um, so y'all remember the food pyramid? They probably changed it since now. But when I was a kid, like you had your grains at the bottom. At the top you had your sugars. And the idea was that you'd have less time on those little things or less amount. Right? So this kind of recreation and diversion stuff, that would be the little sugar at the top. All right? It's the lowest priority and it's the least time. Okay? Why? Because it glorifies and praises God the least. Most often what we're watching is not glorifying. It's not edifying. If anything, it hinders us. You know, if we're watching raunchy movies with exposed people and foul language, I mean, yeah, I'm ready to go serve the Lord. No. I'm wrapped up in the world and in carnality. Okay? So even in your diversion times, we should be glorifying God. Now you can you can add these things together. So well, okay, well, I've got to do this project and I got want my family to be with me, and so we're all working together on a project. You got three for one. That's an efficient use of time. 
So I'm going to take the boys, and we're going to go down to Brother Dean's, and we're going to work on a landscaping project for him and Sister Juanita, and we're going to buy and Zach's going to come with us. So we got family, too, and outside the church. Well, this, is, this is an efficient use of time, right? So thinking about how we spend the Lord's time. Now, the world will tell you, and this is most common, I would say, example you'll see, is that work is most important. I've got my hours that I'm scheduled to work, and these are solid. This is where they're going to be. I'm going to be 8 to 5. That's the most important thing. I build my day around that. And after that, it's going to be recreation. What do I want to do? What sports do I want to watch? What you know, hobbies do I have? When am I going to fish in? I'm going to fit that in second. And then some rest because I need to relax. And then with whatever's left, you know, okay, family time. Yeah, sure. We'll get through that. And that's really how it's framed. It's just kind of uh, a drudgery. Can't wait for those kids to go back to school because heaven help, I have to interact with them. And then finally, if there's anything left and I'm not too tired and it's not raining and it's not inconvenient and the preacher I like saying things that I like, I might go to church. And I might read my Bible once and I might just kind of open it up and oh, read a verse and oh, the Lord spoke to me and now I can go do what I want to do anyway. Y'all seen, y'all seen that model? <laughs> That's not consistent with Scripture. Okay? And so what I would submit to you is in order of prioritizing how we spend the Lord's time, spend it on the Lord first. Spend it on the family that He's given you in your chair, in your care and stewardship. Work. However that looks like in your life and what that needs to be, but recognize that you're working for Him and caring for those that have been put in your charge. And you may be single right now, so you're in your charge. And then rest, build that in, and least of all, it'll be that recreation, those just diversion, the entertainments. Okay? Now you go study your scripture. If you think I'm wrong, go study the scripture and you come tell me where I'm wrong. I may need to adjust. I'm not saying I'm perfect. But this is what I'm come from my experience in studying the word. I don't care about my opinion. I don't care about your opinion. Our opinions need to be based and, and, and founded in the Word. That's how we need to govern our lives. If we're here to glorify and praise Him and seek His will, where is His will revealed? In His revealed Word. Okay? So let's assume you slept eight hours last night. You may not have. Will's grinning. Then that would have left you 960 minutes to spend today how are you going to spend them? Now, you're here this morning. That's great. Good use of your time. All right? We'll go have lunch. We'll fellowship together. We'll come back in. The men are going to share. That's going to be a good use of their time <laughs> and ours. How about the rest of it? Are, are you going to prioritize your time based on your feels, on your emotion, on your perspective, your opinion? Or are you going to begin to prioritize your time based on your study of God's Word and see... What glorifies and praises Him the most? That's my charge to you. And we talked last time about giving to the Lord, right? And we said, well, is, is 10% the ideal amount? Well, it's a good start. But have you thought about, am I giving at least 10% of my time to the Lord? Wait, what? Well, if I'm awake 960 minutes and I give Him 10% of my time each day, how many minutes is that? 96. That's an hour and a half. Is your time in the Word 
in serving others for his glory and in prayer, does it come close to an hour and a half? Or is it woefully less? Now, I'm not saying you've got to get up in the morning and read for an hour and a half, but if you think about the combination of the amount of time that I'm praying and I'm reading for me, and the time that I'm praying and reading with a spouse, and time that I'm praying and reading with children, and family devotions, and singing together, when I'm at church, and when I'm with others, when I'm calling and texting and encouraging others, when I'm getting together and having you know ladies' fellowship or time, I mean, all these different avenues of where we can be spending our time going about our Father's business, right? That's what Jesus said when he was 12, you know, to his mother, don't you know that I'm supposed to be about my father's business? Well, you've been adopted by the same father. And we should be about his business. So maybe that means if, as I'm building out my schedule for the week, I'm going to be intentional about who among the church I'm going to reach out to, who I'm going to make time to go have lunch or do something. You know, just and I can't I can't give you all the examples. But y'all understand what I'm saying is that you are given a precious amount of time. It's a finite commodity. It may not be repeated tomorrow. You may not get the rest of the day. And so if we're going to steward the Lord's time that He's given us, if we're going to give it care and attention and management to please Him, then we need to spend it in ways that please Him. Alright. And that includes being ready to share the Gospel. That's a good use of your time. Thank y'all for your time and attention. For your time. Anybody have a number you'd like to sing in closing? 